turn again to the, uh, the brief book of 1 Timothy, toward the end of the New Testament. 1 Timothy, this is, uh, and as you're doing so, I just remind you, this was a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest missionary in history, who was a church planter all around the Mediterranean. This is written to his co-worker, a little bit younger co-worker, who was about 30 years old at the time, named Timothy. And Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus because it was a very strategic church in a very large city, and they were going through difficulties. Paul spent three years in Ephesus training the leaders, establishing the church, and then when he left from them, he said there would be dark days ahead because there would be men from their own midst who would rise up and begin to teach false things and try to deceive those within the church. And that now, some four years later, has happened, and Paul has sent Timothy there, and so he's giving him instruction on how to uh, do church, how to prioritize what's important, worship, prayer, officers, things like that. Now we come to chapter 2. We began last week, and uh, this morning we'll look at verses 8 through uh, and following. I urge you, I'll begin reading in verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. And now for our attention this morning, beginning in verse 8. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray that and give you thanks that you said your Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. We pray now as we look at this passage that you would give us understanding and application to our lives and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. I was sitting uh, at the Rotary Club some time back, and I was sitting with a man that uh, attends a, a church in downtown Macon, and uh, I was acquainted with him for a number of years, so it was casual friendship. And something came up at the table, and someone mentioned that the Bible said something or another. I was just listening, and he was seated right next to me, and just in anger, he just almost shouted out, you can make that ancient book say anything you want it. You can make it say or mean anything you want it to mean. I don't think too well on my feet, or in this, that case, seated in a chair. But I thought, well, I guess you could if you avoid all the rules of literary interpretation. You can make Alice in Wonderland say whatever you want it to say. You can make the Constitution of the United States say whatever you want it to say. If you avoid grammar and historical context and type of literature, poetry, proverb, uh, historical narrative, teaching. So how do we interpret the Bible? How do we take things that... Some things that were cultural, 
in the first century that were specific to that time and what things are general norms that are to be in the church uh, through all time. So let's look at some of that this morning. Because when we come to the New Testament, there are some cultural aspects, some things that were temporary, just for New Testament times, and others that were permanent. For example, in, though I won't turn there, in 2 Timothy, the, the second letter that Paul wrote to him in chapter 4, Paul says to Timothy, when you come, when you come to visit me, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Now that was written for Timothy alone. If I were to stand up here and try and preach on that verse, I might be stretching the point a lot to say, look at all the applications here. We might say there's an application of friendship and devotion, but that's about it. Uh, so Paul was asking Timothy to do something that was between the two of them. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul often states general norms which applied to the specific situation at the church in Ephesus, but then they were to be normative for, out, for all churches through history and providing instruction for, for all churches, not just for the church at Ephesus. And that's what we have here in 1 Timothy. They are instructions for all churches though there were some specific applications given the fact that there were false teachers in the church at Ephesus. Now, this contains norms for organizing the local church, which in, the, in 1 Timothy is called the household of God. Uh, and so problems arise when teaching that, that was permanent, that were to be general norms, are treated like they know that was just for that particular time and for that particular culture. And so we have to examine the scriptures closely to see what they, they have to say. When we come to the role of, of, of gender and roles of women and men in the church, I, I would say there are two primary attitudes. One, confusion, just absolute confusion about the role of women in church leadership because in some it's a non-issue what, whatsoever, uh, and then in others it's, it is an issue. And so if you were just to come from another country probably and not from a Christian faith and you were to observe the church landscape in America, if you were trying to determine what's the role of women, you would be confused because it looks confusing. Secondly, even where there are some uh, guidelines and churches that have men in leadership and not women, there's really lack of conviction. Many of you perhaps, like myself, grew up in an environment where there were not women preachers and there were not women church officers. Uh, and in many cases, if you were to be questioned on that, you would not be able to explain why that's so. I'm not thinking of anyone here in particular. That's just a general observation. There's a lack of conviction, a lack of understanding, like, well, you know, I don't know, I don't know why we have it that way. Well, let me give you a personal note. I certainly cannot solve all these issues in one sermon. I would just want to deal today as to primarily why we have men as preachers in the Presbyterian Church in America. And I won't answer all the questions uh, by any means. So what I want to do is just let the text speak for itself. I'm just going to walk through the simplicity of the text, not read into it any deep hidden meanings, not try to put stuff there that isn't there. Now, I must remind you, the context is the public worship in the church. That's what he's talking about now. He's talking about corporate worship, what the New Testament called the assembly. When they would assemble together, it was corporate worship like is happening right here now. 
So he begins with comments about men in verse 8. In the assembly is the church, the household of faith gathers. I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Let's look first at the location. Everywhere prayer is to be offered. It may refer to every assembly of believers for worship, whether it's happening here or on the other side of the planet. God has a universal rule for prayer, and that is wherever his people meet. Wherever his people meet. It also stresses the universal call of the gospel, that God will be worshipped everywhere. So he begins by saying, I want men everywhere, not just in the church at Ephesus, but everywhere to lift up holy hands and so forth. And then it mentions the posture of prayer. The location is everywhere, the posture. The Bible does not demand a certain posture in prayer. It doesn't, it, we're told to pray without ceasing, we're told uh, to, to pray continually, uh, but we are not told what posture to use for prayer. But we have examples. Sometimes the Bible speaks of bowing the head, which is a good way of giving honor and worship to a king. Sometimes it mentions kneeling, expresses humility and absolute dependence if you were to kneel before another person. Some prayers in the Bible were offered with a person flat on the ground, just laid out flat on the ground with your face to the ground. Moses often fell face down in the presence of the Lord. For public worship, standing is often mentioned. It's a sign of respect, such as when an important person enters a room. Many of the writings of the early church describe that they would stand for public prayer. So whether kneeling or standing, we may also raise our hands in prayer. This is the way the priest in the Old Testament worshipped in the temple. They would often, they would raise their hands and they would lift their faces. We see the picture of lifting hands in the early Christian artwork when we look back, that that was a common thing, sometimes while kneeling, sometimes while standing. When I pray alone, typically I like to kneel with my hands up and my face to the sky. The outstretched hands indicate I bring nothing before God, and I am here to receive, to receive all you have for me, Lord, and that's why my hands are out like that. But in summary... The scripture allows for several positions in prayer, but we're not commanded to any particular position. We're commanded to revere the Lord. I like what Philip Ryken said. As a general rule, Episcopalians kneel, Presbyterians bow, and Charismatics lift. <laughs> but a variety of postures is a help for private devotion and is suitable for the public worship of God. So what's the primary focus here? The primary focus is he's not saying that if men pray, they have to lift their hands. What he's pray talking about here is a pure heart. It's the purity of prayer. In the Old Testament, if you read the construction of the temple and what was to be there, there were many uh, labors of water, uh, bowls of water, all scattered around the outskirts of the temple so people could wash their hands. It was a symbolic washing. You would come to worship you would come to the temple, you would wash their hands as symbolically that what God desires is a pure heart. And by washing my hands, I'm, it's, it's a symbol that I'm coming with my sins confessed. It's symbolic to represent that. That's why Psalm 26 says, I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar. So when Paul here mentions holy hands, he's talking about the inward reality of a holy life. The inward reality of a holy life. And he mentions three, really three, hindrances 
to prayer and especially public prayer. Anger and disputing or quarreling. That's why I said three. Anger or disputing or quarreling. And quarreling, arguing, was the problem in Ephesus. There were angry words being exchanged. There were controversies over this false teaching. And the sin of anger and arguing or quarreling have particular relevance to those of us that are men. It is true that on occasion, women may disturb the peace in the church. But as a general rule, men are more likely to agitate the church than women are. And I think it's because we are prone to be critical and we are prone to be competitive. And men tend to argue first and think later. And they listen last of all. I can say that, can't I? Because I'm a man. Some would rather be right than be reconciled. And we can get angry when we don't get our own way. And so the Bible reminds Christian men not to be fighting and not to be quarreling, especially in leading in prayer. Because arguments, division in the church, quarreling the church will actually hinder prayers. I don't understand it, but there's a, there's a cause and effect relationship here. Bitterness and resentment will neutralize your prayers. In fact, Jesus taught that if we are having a dispute with another person, that before we worship, we should go and get that squared away. We should go to our brother and seek to be reconciled. Now, it's also normative here that it was typically the elders of the church that were leading in prayer. That's just assumed that it would be the men that would be leading in prayer. And once again, we're talking about the public worship. There were open prayer meetings. We know that. Those were different. There were other times the church would gather. But here we're talking about the assembly, the assembling of the believers together. So he's saying that he, if I'm an elder or another elder here in our worship service is to stand and lead in prayer, uh, and I've got unconfessed sin in my life, and I'm arguing and quarreling, angry at another person, uh, it, it should not be that way. It should not be that way. So the primary focus here is the attitude in prayer. Okay? That also explains why we pray in Jesus' name, because we can't make ourselves righteous enough to be accepted before God. We pray in Jesus' name, as we did earlier, because the only way we're accepted into his presence and have the forgiveness is through the blood of Christ. Okay, now it seems fitting that having mentioned men... In some translations, verse 9 starts off with similarly. So he's continuing remarks now about public worship. Just as the men must make necessary preparations with prepared hearts, pure motives, to be able to come and lift holy hands before the Lord, so the women must give evidence of a spirit of holiness. And he deals first with adornment, outward adornment and inward adornment. First, he, he says to the women, dress modestly with decency and propriety. So on the positive, women, when you gather for worship, dress in a modest and decent and, and decent propriety. Now, without spending too much time dissecting each of those words, it's obvious what he's saying is don't dress in a suggestive or seductive way or don't come to church to make a fashion statement. This sets a universal principle 
The way a woman dresses for worship should not be intended to catch a man's eye. Second, he says not to adorn themselves with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now, this is one of the cultural things that we take the principle imply today. If anyone here has on pearls, it's not as though he's saying you should not come into worship. I'm going to say what that represented in that day. And let me read it to you. Paul was writing to Timothy, pastor in the city of Ephesus, where there were hundreds of prostitutes employed in the great temple of the goddess Diana. I've told you the city was built around, the commerce was built around that temple. And there was temple prostitution. Elaborate hairstyles were part of their dress. Scripture and the literature of the day make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormous enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven and piled high like towers and decorated with gems and gold and pearls. And prostitutes did the same. And Paul is saying, don't come to church dressed that way. Those hairdos are inappropriate for Christian women in worship. It was a distraction, and in some cases it was even suggestive. So here's the emphasis of that part about dress. Christian women should adorn themselves with clothing, hairstyles, and jewelry, which in their cultural culture are not extravagant and not suggestive. Modest and not vain. Chaste and not suggestive. Okay, so we have to translate that into the, the uh, culture uh, that, that we live in. I don't think many women walk around with hairdos that... Some of these were funny. I, I didn't give you the funny ones, the descriptions of some of the ancient historians about how they would interweave and the, 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 girl, the, uh, and the reflection from the sun people would talk about coming from the hair. But that should not be a distraction. Uh, church worship is not a place to make a fashion statement. It's not saying dress in a drab way. It's not saying buy, find the cheapest clothes you can find that look like the cheapest. It's just, it shouldn't be. It should not be an issue. Now, I don't wear a robe in worship. <laughs> Where did we get from women wearing dress like that to a man wearing a robe? And I've heard all sorts of explanations. I wore one for years, but honestly, I got tired of my clothes being soaking wet by the time it was so hot, and especially in the summer. And you say, well, I thought it was representative. Depending on who you explain, some would say, I heard all sorts of history of the robe. But the best argument I heard for it was it makes the pastor's clothes a non-issue. And it saves a lot of trouble. That's smart. Everybody's clothes, I think, at church should be a non-issue. There's certain things, halter tops, stuff like that. I don't care what culture it is. It doesn't fit in worship. And, and I've got a pastor friend at a, at a large church, and he said, I preached uh, one time in a sermon I mentioned about uh, asking women. As he said, every week, at least among the pastor, large pastoral staff, at least there's three people saying, could you say something because the young women dress in such a way that it's a temptation for us that are men. And so he made that comment from the pulpit. The next week he had a bunch of women came and said, same's true of the men. Why do you think the, the women have a corner on it? Some of the men need to dress in ways that aren't. Well, I don't think that's, that's true here. <laughs> Maybe we're not young enough to dress like that. I don't know. But that's, there's not a place for it in worship. And we fathers and mothers especially need to train our children. Uh, I've heard many of us that are dads, now our, our daughters are grown, 
but talk about the near fights we had at the door going to church on Sunday morning or what the daughter planned to wear. Don't lose the fight and just make the point soon. They'll get it in a few years, but maybe at the moment they don't. But third, they're to adorn themselves with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So there are two kinds of beauty. He mentions the outward beauty, physical beauty, and then there's the beauty of the heart, the beauty of character. And so the church should be a place which encourages women to be beautiful on the inside, to adorn themselves with good deeds. Um, oh, I could veer off on all these, but I'll run out of time. Uh, verse 9, the real concern for women as they prepare for public worship should be internal rather than external. Uh, she should examine her motives and goals. Women and their role in the church, verse 11, verses 11 and following. Uh, a woman should learn, did I deal enough with that through verse 10? Good deeds appropriate for all women who profess to work. Yeah, okay, you get the point. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. What actions now are expected of the woman in public worship? And let's just let the passage speak for itself. Three actions are mentioned here, all in verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn. Now this was countercultural in Paul's day. Today we're told that you read the New Testament and it was a step backwards for women's rights. That is not a historically accurate statement. In the Roman world, women were considered to be intellectually second class. They were considered to be academically inferior. The educational system, especially beyond elementary type, was designed primarily for men, not women. And so this was a big step forward. Paul is to being inclusive. The women should learn. And then he says in verse 11, she should remain quiet rather than vocal. And the word for quiet there is not a gag rule. It's not absolute silence. It means not to be disruptive. Paul's talking about the public gathering of the church for worship. We call it the preaching service. It should be a general demeanor of quietness rather than disruption. It's primarily focusing on a teachable spirit. Of course, that not, should not just be true for women. That's true for all of us, but exclusively, but especially for women. She should learn with submission, it says in verse 11. In fact, the term is full submission. Now you say, I don't like that term submission. Well, if you read the Bible, you better get used to it. Because we're to submit to one another, we're to submit to the governing authorities, we are to submit to spiritual leadership in the church, wives are to submit to their husbands, husbands are to submit to God, and we have submission within the Trinity. The, the Son, among the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Son submitted to the Father in becoming a man and being a sacrifice for sin. So if we say submission in every context is bad, then we just condemn God. So submission has nothing to do with equality or worth or value or else it would not be true in the Godhead with God himself. She is to refrain from teaching and exercising authority over a man. She's to receive instruction and submissiveness. What it's talking about here is that a man should be the one proclaiming the truth in the corporate worship of the church. The public preaching of the word and the worship assemblies. And that's why you see those two words used together. That I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. 
That's what it's, it's t- that is language of proclamation in a worship service. Put those two together, teaching and authority. The idea is that when you publicly preach, when I publicly preach, the authority is from God's word, not from the person. And so there, that's the authority. This is the most influential position in the church, the biblical exposition in the corporate assembly. Many people say, well, wait a minute, wasn't all this done away with? I know what Galatians 3.28 says. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, all are one in Christ. And some will teach on that verse, that all distinctions now are removed among believers. That any kind of submission, different roles, was all done away with, with the coming of Christ. But what those verses teach is that we are all equal before the Lord if we are saved. I am no more saved than a seven-year-old girl that's trusting Christ. It's, that's what Galatians is speaking of. It's not just saying there's no distinction in roles. So it's helpful to remember there is no distinction between male and female, bond or free. There's no distinction between them before the Lord, but there is a distinction when it comes to the roles of authority in the church. And it rests with men. The elders are charged with the primary responsibilities of leadership. Acts chapter 20, 1 Timothy 5, 1 Peter 5, Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 5. And so it's a summary of their job. It's summarizing what the elders do. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. In other words... I do not permit a woman to assume the office of elder in the church. Why does Paul say all this? What's he based these ideas on? Let's move on to the next verses. He appeals to creation. Verses 13 and 14. For Adam was first formed in Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was a woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So he's not basing this on first century issues. He's not basing what he's saying on a distinct situation in Ephesus. He goes all the way back to creation. So they do not reflect his view of the world in the first century. They are rooted in creation. And he says, my position is such because of the order of creation. Adam was created first, then he created the woman that Adam later named Eve. And there were differentiated roles for men and women And when did those differentiated roles begin? After Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world? Before. No, before. Before sin entered the world, there were differentiated roles for men and women. That's why he goes all the way back to Genesis in making the argument, because he's saying this is not cultural. It will be expressed in different cultural ways, but this goes back to Genesis. And he mentions the order of deception in verse 14. The judicial sentence was on the woman. Eve fell into sin when she ignored her divinely ordained position. Instead of following Adam, she chose to lead. Now, Adam was not deceived in the same manner that Eve was deceived. Even though from reading the text, it's obvious Adam is standing listening and watching everything that takes place. So I don't mean, and the Bible certainly doesn't mean that he's off the hook. She listened directly to Satan. He did not. She sinned before he did. She became the leader in that situation. He was the follower. She led when she should have followed. Now, here's what's interesting. After sinning, 
After the sin was committed by Adam and Eve, when God comes, who does he address first? Adam. He was to be responsible. What has happened here, Adam? Yet he abdicated that role. And so that which had been a blessing before, that Eve, by virtue of creation, constantly followed Adam, now it's no longer an unmixed blessing. For now, the one that she's following is a sinner, is a sinful man. Now, does this mean there's only pain and chaos from that point on because of that problem? Uh, No. And that's why in verse 15 there's a word of hope. Without question, the most difficult part of this whole passage. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, there are three primary possible interpretations. Y'all still with me? Y'all aren't interested in any of this, are you? I don't know. I need to preach on this every week. At least nobody's asleep. I promise I can tell. Three possible interpretations, and they're all complicated by the word saved, where it says that. Saved through childbearing? Here's one possible interpretation. Physically, she, the woman, will be brought safely through childbirth. That's one interpretation. Second interpretation spiritualizes this. And it's meaning she will be saved through the childbirth of Christ. Through the birth of Christ. And this is consistent with verses 5 and 6 that we looked at last week where it says he's the one mediator between God and man. It would make sense that in almost the same paragraph, same two paragraphs, he's mentioned Christ being our only hope, our only mediator, and now he refers to him at the end. You can tell where I lean. I lean toward that interpretation. And with that, if Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, then there could be no salvation for anyone. The third possible interpretation And this is the one John Stott likes. A woman's greatest achievement is found in the bearing of children and in her devotion to her divinely ordained role. And that is to help her husband, to bear their children, to follow the life of a faithful and godly man. By carrying out those acts, concisely called the bearing of children, it's not just talking about childbirth, but the whole family, she is preserved. And so her greatest, I, it wasn't John Stott, it was Chuck Swindoll. And I wrote down what he said. Her greatest hour of achievement, her greatest mark on our times will not occur in public worship, leading in public worship, it will occur in the realm of the home. Well, I lean toward the, uh, the prophetic part, given the context that it's talking there about the coming of Christ. Golly, I'm out of time. Let me close. I've got... I've got six applications. Maybe I can cover two, and then we'll close. By the way, there's some excellent resources. I plan to put them on my blog this week if you want to look those up, books and and, uh, sermons and such. These words, here's an observation. These words are to be gently respected. They're not to be exaggerated. They're not to be exploited. I'd urge you men, don't make this your favorite passage. (laughs) (laughs) To the women... Your positive response to this instruction helps the church maintain its distinctives. We're not to be a duplicate of the world. We don't rush out, read the newspaper, and find out what the world thinks, and then try to mimic it in the church. That's not our place. Third, in no way does, do these words limit ministry. For anyone here who has a heart to minister, to see people saved, 
to see lives helped, to see people grow in their faith, to meet needs of others, to resist evil. There are fields of opportunity that are endless. God intends for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. And nobody is to be at home watching soap operas as the world burns or ball games. I mean, it's not as though we're to prop our feet up as though, well, I, I'm deprived, I can't hold that office. God intends to equip and mobilize the saints through a company of spiritual men who take primary responsibility for leadership and teaching in the church. Fourth, the church accomplishes what God wants us to accomplish when we do God's work God's way. The reason we do not have women, elders, preachers in our church, in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is because of the teaching of Scripture and no other reason. It has nothing to do with giftedness or spirituality or commitment to Christ. It's because of the teaching of Scripture. So the question we face is not what Scripture teaches, but whether we follow it or not. And last of all, we should pray regularly for God to raise up men Men in this congregation who have a clear moral vision for their families, who have a clear understanding of their roles as fathers and husbands, who have a zeal for Christ's church, who have a sacrificial commitment to fulfilling the Great Commission, and who have a tender-hearted perseverance to make it real. When that happens, or as that happens, I believe the vast majority of women will rejoice over such leadership. Where this causes a problem is when the men can care less about Christ. I don't think that's the case here by any means. But when that happens, when they are committed, I think women rejoice over that. And when it happens, it upholds the beautiful complementary nature that God has of mature manhood and womanhood. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your clarity in days when we don't have it. We're confused. Our culture is more confused than we are as to what's the role of men and women. We're told there are no distinctions, no distinctions between the genders. And yet we know better, and we see it even in the way you've made us physically. So we pray for understanding, we pray for guidance and conviction and discernment uh, to follow you in all areas, including this. Thank you for Christ, our Redeemer. It is only through him that we are saved. It is only through his perfect life and his substitutionary death that we trust in that. In his name we pray. Amen.